Blog Talk Radio.
that was another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayome Azikwe. Uh, today is Saturday, uh, May 28th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Another program. And uh, this is the program in our Africa Liberation Weekend series commemorating the 15th anniversary of founding of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor of today's African Union, uh, founded in 2002. Uh, we will feature our Pan African Newswire reports uh, with dispatches on the call by the chair of the African Union, uh, Senegal President Mackie Stahl, for Western states of sanctions against the Southern African state of Zimbabwe. Tunisia has placed travel bans on several leading opposition politicians. We'll have details on that story. Algeria is concerned about the security status of the North African state amid escalating jihadist attacks on the continent. And rebels in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo have attacked a military base. In the second hour, we look uh, at uh, the origins of the Pan-African movement through the voice of esteemed scholar, activist, uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois. We also will listen uh, to discussions around the significance of Africa Day this year related to journalism on the African continent as as well as uh, economic development and food security. Finally, we hear an address uh, by Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, the founder of Modern Ghana and Africa. Uh, These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We're going to take a musical interlude uh, with the legendary uh, Pan-African composer and band leader, uh, Franco of the TPOK Jazz Orchestra. This is a television broadcast from 1975. Uh, let's listen. Thank you. 
Et que ce côté vous 
fina badote toye bayo mosala nayo se confina badote ya baninga olingi ba matate pazonga si bayo Mon salanayo, c'est colo bacana bato, 
viole qui caca, mama. Ma chérie, bon Dieu, n'a pas 
to the Humanitarian Action Certainly, a pledge conference took place in order to challenge of humanitarian aid. It's the African Union's first extraordinary humanitarian stop. International donors also took part in the meeting. A 2020 United Nations report said that 282 Africans face malnutrition, a number that could still increase in 2022 uh, due to the effects of the war. Ukraine uh, conflict, as well as climate shock. In the new African state of Tunisia, a court has issued a civil ban on 34 people, including the moderate Islamist and Nazi party, all put into place after the 2011 Tunisian uh, uprising. A Nazi party chief, uh, Rashid Anouchi, on the and 33 others have targeted in an investigation to the alleged service of apparatus, which has been named of two leftists in 2013. Spokeswoman for the in Ariana Fatma Abu Yahya claimed on Friday night that the suspects had illegally gained access to information concerning state institutions and allegedly shared it with someone with no legitimate reason to have it, uh, which abuse of power, she did not elaborate. Uh, the travel bans were issued on orders of Justice Minister Lila Jaffet, the court spokeswoman uh, told uh, Radio Masik. Banucci, uh, who also headed uh, Tunisia's parliament, uh, which was suspended, then dissolved by the Tunisian president, Kais Saeed, said in a statement that the so-called secret apparatus is prefabricated and represents a falsification of facts. He denounced a deliberate operation by parties with the problem in the North Country. He denounced on which he has ordered to hunt out the exceptions and as a guitar claiming the goal was to restore a dictatorship in Tunisia. Saeed conferred on himself supreme powers. Uh, besides dissolving parliament, Saeed fired the prime minister and gave himself the power to rule by decree and measures the president claimed were needed to save the country from imminent peril and corruption. Under pressure, who are concerned about democratic backsliding in Tunisia, Saeed laid out a roadmap for C's organizing a referendum on July 25th on political reforms to amend the constitution and holding a parliamentary election on December 18th. Listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, in uh, Algeria, Mohammed uh, bin Halima uh, looks worry and frightened as he is led off a plane at Algiers. him, a team from and video was online on March the 24th. Three days later, Algerians watched on television as the PTO confessed to involvement with an organization that authorities have listed as a Islamist terrorist groups uh, plotting against the Algerian government. 
uh, once a faithful servant of his home as a non-commissioned army officer, then Halima uh, became a supporter of Algeria's pro-democracy movement. Then a deserter who fled to Europe, Spain expelled him after Algeria issued a warrant for his arrest. The confession scene was made public by Algeria's General Directorate of National Security in what could be seen as a warning to other soldiers or citizens. Uh, hundreds of Algerians in jail for trying to lie the rock movement that had weekly demonstrations in leading to the downfall of Algerian Abdel Aziz the March by nation government then expanded the sweep by linking some God regarded as Islamist infiltrators whose leaders are in Europe and MAK, a separatist movement in Tabli, uh, home of the Berbers. For the last two or three years, there have been thousands of legal cases against activists, said well-known lawyer Mustafa Bouchachi. The only error is they express their opinions on social media for a state law. For authority, against which South African nation guaranteeing the state of the heart of the islands for human rights groups was launched on May 19th by dozens of non-governmental organizations against the oppression of what they say are human rights. The United States State Department's uh, 2021 report on human rights in Algeria uh, says a long list of problems exist, including arbitrary arrests and detentions and restrictions on freedom of assembly and association. In March, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, asked Algeria to change direction to guarantee its people to freedom of expression, association, and peaceful assembly. To be a human rights activist in Algeria has become very difficult, uh, said Zaki Hanashi, a Herat uh, militant recently temporarily released from prison. To be an activist who refuses the system is complicated. It even means sacrifices. Hanachi, uh, best known for keeping track of Iraq-related arrests, was arrested and jailed in February, including this being terror attacks. The alleged confession of Ben Halima captured in Rashad in abject plans targeting the stability of Algeria and the institution by exploiting uh, misguided youth. Rashad's website claimed the police video showed confession of a hostage in a security services propaganda exercise. Rashad's goals are unclear, but it is a key target of Algeria's crackdown. In December, Rashad said it submitted a complaint to a United Nations rapporteur over Algeria's what he claimed to be arbitrary classification of the as a organization and asked U.S. authorities to urge Algeria to cease its Amnesty International described him as a whistleblower. Spain has a special interest in remaining on good terms with Algeria, which provides much of its gas uh, resources. For the National Committee of Freedom for the Detained, some 300 people are behind bars in Algeria for their political opinions. Up to 70 were given provisional freedom at the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, but others have since uh, been arrested. 
And uh, finally, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Congo's army defended a major military camp in the country's east just two days ago after the fighting the 28th level of the in the region. Uh, the continued the area of the province tonight. He added, there was more than an hour of exchange of fire between the Loyalist Army and the M23 rebels, he said. The Army earlier confirmed uh, the rebels also attacked its positions in the Nyagongo and Mushuru area. More than 20 shells were fired by the rebels on Wednesday on Mangava. The capacity for the nature area according to a Smith military is largely before a twenty thirteen uh deny claims that they support the M twenty three. The group has recently resurfaced uh, with increasing attacks in eastern DRC. This is the Congo government of not affecting the commitments it made to integrate rebel fighters in the national army. Knowing the position of the Congolese government on the process of demobilization and disarmament, it is clear that they act in this way because the Congolese head of state has been clear. There's no question of reintegrating the rebels into the analysts in Cuba. The Discussions on the affairs of African people 
throughout the continent and the world. The Press Agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time period, the Pan-African Newswires published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswires represents the only daily international news on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to our website, just go to our address at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 28, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our... Generation 
Welcome back. Uh, the sound of Bob Marley and the Whalers uh, with the tune entitled One Drop from the Fival album uh, released in 1979. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, this is uh, part one of our African Liberation Weekend in commemoration of the 59th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity on May 25th of 1963. And, of course, uh, the predecessor, the continuer, uh, the African Union, uh, founded in 2002 in Sirte, Libya, uh, some two decades ago. And, of course, uh, we are still uh, commemorating uh, the unity and, uh, of course, the liberation of Africa. Uh, right now, we want to uh, focus on some of the history of uh, Pan-Africanism. Uh, one of the luminaries, uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois, has been involved uh, since uh, his doctoral research on the suppression of the African slave trade, uh, which was uh, submitted to Harvard University in 1896. He attended uh, the first, uh, what is known as the first Pan-African conference in London in 1900. Uh, in 1919, uh, he, of course, uh, convened the Pan-African Congress uh, in Paris and, uh, of course, navigated and organized uh, four other uh, conferences in 1918, 1921, 1923, and 1927, and, of course, in 1945 at Manchester in England. Uh, du Bois talks about uh, some of his history in this upcoming clip. Uh, let's listen in. And I got the idea that here was a chance to do something for Africa. I wrote to President Wilson and uh, told him that at the peace conference in Versailles, they ought to take up the matter of the German colonies. And since the Allies now are in charge, that they ought to set those colonies up as free, independent states and uh, put them under an international committee on which uh, Africans should be members. Mr. Wilson didn't answer that letter, but the, uh, the American committee over there considered it, and uh, out of that really came the, uh, the Mandates Commission. On the other hand, when I got to Paris, I tried to organize a Pan-African Congress. There had been a Pan-African Conference in 1900, which I had attended and uh, wrote the resolutions, but that had died. When I tried to organize this Pan-African Congress, I was told that Paris was under martial law and that we couldn't have anything of that sort. The Americans discouraged it. But uh, I went to the black man who was uh, instrumental in bringing something like uh, 100,000 black soldiers from Africa to help in the First World War and really turned back the Germans. And uh, Dianya went to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister said I could have the Congress. But, uh, of course, the uh, America and Great Britain and so forth wouldn't allow anybody to have passports to get over there. So the Congress was rather small. We had 57 delegates, people, Negroes, who happened to be in uh, Paris at the time a few Africans, a few Negro Americans, and some whites. We had this 
first Pan-African Congress in, in 1919 at the Grand Hotel. And then after the World War, in 1921, we held a much larger Congress with uh, some two or three hundred people and a good many from Africa. And that uh, aroused the colonial powers. They got very much excited because they thought I was trying to start a revolution in Africa, which I wasn't at all. What I was trying to do was to get educated Africans in various parts of the world to come together and know each other and talk with each other and see what kind of program could be laid down for the uh, future emancipation of the Africans in their own country. I was held several Pan-African Congresses after that. There were none that were as great and comprehensive as the second in 1921. But uh, there was one in uh, 1923 in which uh, leading Englishmen took part. That took place in London, Paris. And uh, in 1924, I think, in Lisbon, where we got members of the uh, Portuguese parliament and some of the colonial officials. Uh, the voice of uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois uh, speaking um, uh, on the history of uh, Pan-Africanism and his uh, personal involvement uh, in those struggles. Uh, here's another um, audio clip of uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois speaking in 1953 on uh, the revolt that was taking place at that time on the African continent. In the opportunity on this visit to Los Angeles, to speak to you on world peace and revolt in Africa. These subjects, together with that of the problems of minorities in the United States, form, in fact, one problem when brought together and viewed in unity. It is that task which I ask you to permit me to essay tonight and to approach it from the point of view of what we usually call the Negro problems. All so-called social problems tend to merge. They all have to do with human actions and are based on human customs and treat the numerous and intricate relations of human beings. Moreover, particular social problems despite the names they bear, change and change radically in the course of time. Indeed, social problems change more often and in more ways than physical problems because of the unpredictable variations in human feelings and choices. They are subject to the same physical laws as sticks and stones, but there is enough of what we call will and volition to make it necessary for persons who are studying a human problem or trying to conduct their action in accordance with its present manifestations to keep a weary eye on changes and on current facts. For instance, in the United States during the young manhood of Frederick Douglass, the Negro problem was the problem of slavery. There were, of course, minor and connected problems, but they were all subjected to the main problem of human freedom. 
Then rather suddenly, between 1863 and 1876, the Negro problem became a problem of political enfranchisement and party government, which rapidly descended into race war, leading to temporary attempts to grapple with problems of work and education, but finally ending in practical disfranchisement of the entire Negro race in the South in 1876. From 1876 until our day, the race problem in the United States of the Negro has been primarily a struggle to regain the right to vote in the midst of caste discrimination, changing slowly but definitely to a problem of the right to work and to be trained for work at all levels, and to a struggle for broad civil and social rights. Most of you, I think, assume that this is still the Negro problem. But you must be warned that it is not wholly or mainly that now. That the reason that it is not is because of the fundamental changes now spreading over the whole world. Whereas in the 18th century, the world thought that progress and emancipation were coming from popular education and universal suffrage, we know now that more fundamental than these important rights is the economic organization of the world. That is, the way in which the labor of human beings is organized to satisfy human needs. This question is so fundamental that all other questions of political power, of education, and human happiness depend upon it. This is the basic reason for the rise of philanthropy, of socialism, and the attempt at complete realization of socialism through communism. It is immaterial whether or not you like or accept socialism or communism. The absolute compulsion of your facing the problem which they try to solve is inescapable. While I am sure most of you realize this worldwide change of emphasis, I doubt if you see how this affects the Negro problem in the United States. Because most American Negroes of education and property have long since oversimplified their problem and tried to separate it from all other social problems. They conceive that their fight is simply to have the same rights and privileges as other American citizens. They do not for a moment stop to question how far the organization of work and distribution of wealth in America is perfect. Nor do they for a moment conceive that the economic organization of America may have fundamental injustices and shortcomings which seriously affect not only Negroes, but the whole world. Just as Booker Washington in his day assumed that American ideals were complete and right, that all we had to do was to fight to imitate and attain them, so today we Negroes are largely quite swept away by the miracles of American industry, the huge accumulation of wealth, and the conspicuous expenditure which we find about us. 
Our idea of heaven is to be rich Americans, to make the kind of show in home, dress, and automobiles that is so popular in America, and to suffer in our effort to do these things that we should be able to do them with no discrimination on account of race or color. This is dangerously short-sighted. We American Negroes are part of the working force of the world. Not only do we represent an important segment of the American working class, but also of the working classes of Europe, Asia, and Africa, and the other Americas. In these days of uncertainty, we have to live and here in the United States, where for many, it is difficult to earn a living without selling one's soul to falsehood and greed. And that was. And uh, that was uh, Dr. W.D. Du Bois uh, speaking. Uh, it is said in 1953. And uh, here's another address uh, on uh, the struggle as Dr. Du Bois saw it in 1960, uh, speaking about uh, the existential issues uh, confronting Africans in the United States. Uh, in regard to the thrust towards uh, desegregation, integration, and what impact that would have on the consciousness and uh, the position of the African community in the United States address from 1960. Has reached a point in his progress where he needs to take serious account of where he is and whither he is going. This day has come much earlier than I thought it would. I wrote in 1940 a book called Dusk of Dawn, in which I sought to record our situation in a period of change. And I expected that period to last for another 50 years. But the Second World War and the rise of socialism and communism has hastened the event. And we are definitely approaching now a time when the American Negro will become in law equal in citizenship to other Americans. There is much hard work yet to be done before the Negro becomes a voter, before he has equal rights in education, and before he can claim complete civil and social equality in this nation. Yet this situation is in sight, and it brings not as many assume an end to the so-called Negro problems, but the beginning of even more difficult problems of race and culture. Because we must now ask ourselves, when we become equal American citizens, what will be our aims and ideals? And what will we have to do with the selecting of these aims and ideals? Are we to assume that we will simply adopt the ideals of Americans and become what they are or want to be, and that we will have in this process 
no ideals of our own. That would mean that we would cease to be Negroes as such and become white in action, if not completely in color. We would take our culture from white Americans, doing as they do and thinking as they think. Manifestly, this would not be satisfactory. Physically, it would mean that we would be integrated with Americans, losing first of all the physical evidence of color and hair and racial type. We would lose our memory of Negro history and of those racial peculiarities with which we have been long associated. We would cease to acknowledge any greater tie with Africa than with England or Germany. We would not try to develop Negro music and art and literature as distinctive and different, but allow it to be further degrading as it is today. We would always, if possible, marry lighter-hued people so as to have children who are not identified with the Negro race and thus solve our racial problem in America by committing racial suicide. More or less clearly, this possibility has been in the minds of Negroes in the past although not assented to by all. Some have stated it and welcomed it. Others have simply assumed that this development was in inevitable and therefore that nothing could be done about it. This is the reason that my Pan-African movement, which began in 1900 when I cooperated with a meeting in London and which was definitely started in 1919 in the first Pan-African Congress. I could get but little support or cooperation from American Negroes. Most of them resented it as being a sort of back to Africa movement. Others simply said we have enough problems in America without taking on the insoluble problems of Africa. Today, when the African people are themselves arising to settle their own problems and are in the peculiar, we are in the peculiar position of being a group of persons of legal descent with some education, with intelligence, who not only cannot help the Africans, but in many cases do not want to. Any statement of our desire to develop American Negro culture, to keep our own ties with colored peoples, to remember our past, is being regarded as racism. I, for instance, who have devoted my life to efforts to break down racial problems, racial barriers, and being accused of desiring to emphasize differences of race, this has a certain element of truth. As I have said before, and as I repeat, I am not fighting to settle the question of racial equality in America by the process 
of getting rid of the Negro race, not producing black children, forgetting the slave trade and slavery, and the struggle for emancipation, forgetting abolition, and especially of ignoring the whole cultural history of Africans in the world. No, what I have been fighting for, and am still fighting, is the possibility of black folk and black cultural patterns existing in America without discrimination and on terms of equality. If we take this attitude, we have got to do so consciously and deliberately. This brings up a number of different, of difficult problems which we will have to solve and make definite preparation for such solution. Take for instance the current problem of the education of our children. By the law of the land today, they should be admitted to the public schools. If and when they are admitted to these schools, certain things will inevitably follow. Negro teachers will become rarer and in many cases quite disappear. Negro children will be instructed in public schools and taught under unpleasant, if not discouraging, circumstances. Even more largely than today, they will fall out of school, cease to enter high school, and fewer and fewer will go to college. Theoretically, Negro universities will disappear. Negro history will be taught less or not at all. And as in so many cases in the past, Negroes will remember their white or Indian ancestors and quite forget their black forebears. Read, for instance, the autobiography of John Mercer Langston. To some folk, this type of argument would lead to the conclusion that we ought to refuse to enter high schools or to clamor for unsegregated schools. In other words, that we ought to give up the fight against color discrimination. I want, however, to emphasize that this not only is unnecessary, but impossible. We must accept equality or die. What we must also do is to lay down a line of thought and action which will accomplish two things, the utter disappearance of color discrimination in American life and the preservation of African history and culture as a valuable contribution to modern civilization as it was to medieval and ancient civilization. To do this is not easy. It calls for intelligence, cooperation, and careful planning. It would meet head-on the baffling difficulties of faces today. Here, for instance, is the boy who says simply, he's not going to school. His treatment in the schools, even if admitted, is such that does not attract him. Moreover, the boy who does enter the integrated school and gets on reasonably well, 
does not always become a useful member of our group. Negro children educated in such schools, in northern colleges, often know nothing of Negro history, know nothing of Negro leadership, and doubt if there ever have been Negro leaders in Africa, the West Indies, and the United States who equal white folk. Some even become ashamed of themselves and their hope. They regard the study of Negro biography and the writing of Negro literature as a vain attempt to pretend that Negroes are really the equals of whites. That may be often the point of view of those of our children who are educated in white schools. There are going to be schools which do not discriminate against colored people, and the number is going to increase slowly in the present, but rapidly in the future, until long before the year 2000, there will be no school segregation on the basis of race. The deficiency in knowledge of Negro history and culture, however, will remain, and this danger must be met, or else American Negroes will disappear. Their history and their culture will be lost. Their connection with the rising African world will be impossible. What then can we do, or should we try to do? Negro parents and Negro parent teachers associations will have, at least temporarily, to take on and carry the burden which they have hitherto left to the public schools. The child in the family, in specific organizations, or in social life, must learn, but he does not learn in school, until the public schools become what they should be. Negro history must be taught for many critical years by parents, in clubs, by lecture courses, by a new Negro literature which Negroes must write and buy. This must be done systematically for the whole Negro race in the United States and elsewhere. This is going to take time and money and is going to call for racial organization. Negro communities, Negro private schools, will and must be organized and supported. This racial organization, however, will be voluntary and not compulsory. It will not be discriminatory. It will be carried on according to definite object and ideal, and will be open to all who share this ideal. And, of course, that ideal must always be in accord with the greater ideals of mankind. But what American Negroes must remember is that voluntary organization for great ends is far different from compulsory segregation for evil purposes. Especially and first, there has got to be a deliberate effort made toward the building of Negro families. Our family organization has been left almost entirely to chance. How, when, and where 
the Negro boy and girl is going to meet and mate has been given no organized thought, and in many cases the whole process has been deliberately ignored. Beyond that comes the primary question of what a Negro child is to do in life. This has been taught only incidentally and accidentally in economics or in ethics, outside and beyond school, in the family and in religious organizations. The Negro race has got to impress upon its children certain fundamental facts. The normal human being must work and work regularly to supply his wants, such legitimate wants as food and clothes and shelter. In addition, there must be creative activities, such as we understand under art and literature. And then, there must be systematic recreation for health, for normal satisfying of the sexual instinct, for social contact, for sympathy, friendship, love, and sacrifice. In this matter of life vocation, we Negroes have got to inculcate in the minds of our children many objects to which white America today is not only opposed, but bitterly fights. Why should a man be a physician? Not simply to cure disease and treat accidents, but to prevent disease and protect health. Today, most physicians, white and black, have no time for this. This is the object of social medicine and is practiced in most of Europe, both Western and Eastern, and in China. While the American Medical Association fights with huge funds every effort to bring government-supported social medicine to the service of the people. Why should a man study law but to see that justice is done, and yet the chief service and huge pay of lawyers today in America is to guide wealthy and powerful corporations in breaking the law and in putting on the statute books laws which discriminate against the poor. Our jails are bursting with prisoners who have no one to defend them even when they have committed no crime. Why should a man become a dentist? Not to extract teeth, but to prevent teeth from becoming diseased. The schools of the socialist and communist world are doing this. Our schools have scarcely begun. What is the object of business? Americans say profits. And in order to make profits large, we are spending $50,000 million a year for war. This war is carried on to make exploitation of land and labor possible, to steal materials and cheap laborers. When northern Rhodesia sells her copper for $36 million, she pays nothing for the land out of which the copper comes, and only half a million dollars for the black labor that mines it. Twenty million dollars goes to the investors in Europe and America, 
and the rest to machines and weak European labor. The object of business should not be profit but service. The service of collecting raw material, of processing it for consumption, and bringing it to the consumer. For this service, wages should be paid. But vast unearned income should not be given to the man who steals land and takes from the laborer that which is his due. This is increasingly the belief of civilized countries, but it is not the belief of much of Western Europe nor of white America. The correct attitude toward the vocations then must be taught increasingly in our schools. Yet today, in American schools and colleges, white and black, economics, social science, money and finance are not properly taught. And especially, most schools and colleges are afraid to teach the remedies which socialism and communism propose for better distribution of work and income, or to tell how the larger part of the civilized world is adopting these methods of accomplishing these things. I pause to remark that your program committee has shown positive genius in not even mentioning once the word socialism in this program. Yet, socialists say most of the money which we pay for telephone service, for electrical devices, and for power goes to make a few individuals rich and not for paying good wages or making these services cheap. Insurance is a great invention designed to place the cost of death and accident on the whole community instead of letting it ruin the individual. Here is no place for private property. The premium should pay for the loss and the wages of, manu of management. But today, above this, individuals in insurance make millions and private insurance companies control national money and credit. Evidently, insurance is a public function and not a private enterprise. The great American world, of which we for centuries have been trying to become a part, and which has risen to be one of the most powerful nations in the world, is today losing its influence. And that American Negroes do not realize. There was a time when, as leader of a new democracy, as believers in a new tolerance in religion, as a people basing their life on equality of opportunity in the ownership of land and property, the United States stood first in the minds of mankind. That day has passed. I took a trip recently that lasted a year. I had already traveled widely. I had been to Europe 15 times. I had been to Asia. 
I had circled the world. Then for ten years I was imprisoned in the confines of the United States by the unauthorized dictum of those who were ruling. From 1950 to 1958, I was not allowed to travel abroad. The reason was that I had cooperated with millions of men who wanted war to cease. Even here, my action had been simply to tell Americans what was being done by other countries to promote peace. For this, I was accused of being the agent of foreign peacemakers and ordered to admit this or go to jail. It cost me over $30,000 to defend myself in court against this absurd accusation. This sum I and my wife had to beg from the public traveling from state to state. The court threw the case out of court for lack of proof. Despite this, I was refused a passport to travel abroad until the Supreme Court finally decided that the Department of State had no legal ground to refuse me a passport. Paul Rosen, who for ten years had been deprived of a livelihood for equally baseless reasons, he and myself and a few others were given passports. I and my wife went abroad to Great Britain and Holland, to France and Czechoslovakia, to Sweden and Germany, to the Soviet Union, and to the Chinese Republic. It was the most astonishing trip I have ever had. It radically changed my whole point of view. I saw first that America and its actions since the First World War was thoroughly condemned by the civilized world, that no other country was so disliked and hated, and for fear of our wealth and power, there were certain countries like the British and the Dutch who restrained their expression of, delight, of uh, dislike. Nevertheless, they did not like America or Americans. That the French could hardly mention America without calling them dirty. That the people of Czechoslovakia and Germany blamed America for the cruelties which they had suffers, suffered and for the difficulties which they were facing that the 200 million people in the Soviet Union regarded Americans as their greatest threat, and that the 680 millions of China hate America with perfect hatred for treating them as subhuman. Outside, outside this matter of feeling was my discovery that the world was going socialist, that most people in the world in Europe, Asia, and even Africa were either socialistic or communistic. No matter what our attitude is toward socialism and communism, no matter how we judge the teachings of Karl Marx, we must face the truth. Not only black but white Americans must know, and they do not know. The news-gathering agencies and periodic periodicals of opinion in the United States
are deliberately deceiving the people with regard to the rest of the world. For a long time they have spread the belief that communism is a crime or a conspiracy and that anyone either taking part or even examining conditions in the socialist lands is a self-conscious criminal or a fool. For decades now, they have made Americans believe that communism is a failure, that the Russian people and the people of Hungary and Czechoslovakia and the Balkans are prisoners enslaved in thought of action, that communism only needed our help to fall in ruins, that China is trying to conquer all Asia. Despite all this propaganda, we are beginning now to realize some things that are clear. That the Soviet Union has made color prejudice illegal. That she has a system of education probably the best in the world and far superior to ours. That science there is forging ahead of anything that we have. And that the people are not prisoners and are not asking our help in order to revolt. They are progressing at a rate superior to us in art, literature, and general happiness. I spent six weeks in China. I was treated with a courtesy that I had known nowhere else of the world. And I was convinced that here is a colored people whom happiness and knowledge would outstrip the world before the dawn of the next century. The work of China today is a miracle of success. What we Americans want is freedom to know the truth and the right, to think and to act as seems wisest to us under the democratic process. And what we have to remember is that in the United States, democracy has almost disappeared. There is no use deceiving ourselves in that respect. Half the citizens of the United States do not even go to the polls. Most Negroes are disfranchised. It is the considered opinion of social scientists in America that the election which made Dwight Eisenhower president cost over $100 million and perhaps $200 million. Why does America need such an election fund? A democratic election does not need it, and the United States needed and used it only for bribing voters directly or indirectly or frightening men from thinking. This is what the rulers of the United States demand, and those rulers, instead of being free individuals, are organized corporations who suppress freedom by monopolizing wealth. If all this is true, it must be taught to our youth. It must be taught by teachers and instructors and professors. And in this case, we must face the fact that these teachers may lose their jobs. They can only be supported and employed in the bulk, by the bulk of Americans, the bulk of American Negroes, support institutions which teach this. If the Negro or white colleges are going to depend on the gifts 
priests of the rich for support, they cannot teach the truth. If they are supported tomorrow, Negroes must give not a tenth but a quarter of their income to support education and social organization, and teachers must sacrifice themselves to the last penny. This impoverishment of the truth seekers can be avoided by eventually making the state bear the burden of education, and this is socialism. We must vote then for this kind of socialism. We began this in the New Deal, and we were stopped. But in Europe and Asia, and also in Africa, socialism and communism are spreading. Socialism will grow in the United States if we restore the democracy of which we have boasted so long and done so little. Here is where Negroes may and must lead. This is my sincere belief, arrived at after long study, travel, observation, and thought. Many disagree with me, and that is their right. They have every right, to every opportunity, to express their belief, and you cannot escape listening to them, and should not if you could. <coughs> but they have no right to demand that you refuse to listen to the worldwide voice of socialism or to threaten you with punishment if you do listen. This is the first right of democracy, the right to listen. I appeal to the members of this organization, first to teach the truth as they see it, even if they lose their jobs, to study socialism Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, a lecture by uh, W.B. Du Bois here in 1960 uh, discussing uh, the question of um, emancipation, civil rights, uh, group, collectivity, Pan-Africanism, anti-colonialism, socialism, and communism. And uh, we're commemorating our African liberation weekend, uh, the 59th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity on May 25th of 1963 in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and of course, the extension of the OAU uh, with the African Union uh, founded uh, in 2002 in CERT, Libya. And uh, this is the first installment of a three-part uh, program entitled African Liberation uh, Weekend. Uh, today, uh, we've been looking at uh, the early history of the Pan-African movement uh, with uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois. And uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Speak drum. Tell the real story. For the people who would condemn in slavery time their brothers and sisters for being ignorant. Listen to the story the drums tell. They say, you black man should love those brothers and sisters even in death. Because that valiant struggle for life made you what you are today. So keep on growing for them in mind, in body, and in soul. 
African Journal, our worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, we're here on uh, Saturday evening, um, May 28th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we want to listen right now to a segment on um, the founder of Modern Africa, uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana. The people of the Gold Coast had had their own assembly under the British, but not independence. In 1957, they became the first black Africans to get complete freedom. Leaders from East and West came to Accra to see the handover. Vice President Nixon represented the United States. He arrived with a delegation that included civil rights leader Martin Luther King. 
a new order is coming into being and an old order is passing away. It seems to me that uh, this is fit testimony to the fact that eventually the forces of justice triumph in the universe and somehow the universe itself is on the side of freedom uh, and justice. The British were proud of the peaceful nature of the transfer. For Dr. Nkrumah, main architect of Ghana's independence, this is a day of fulfillment. The longing to be free, the need to be free, these are part of the rightful heritage of man, a heritage denied to colonial Africa until now. The Gold Coast was renamed Ghana with a parliamentary system modeled on Westminster. Committing themselves to civil rights, the new government put up a huge commemorative arch. Here, but a handful of years ago, men laid down their lives for a cause that was not yet won, for freedom, for justice. Komla Bedema had been with Nkrumah from the start. Now he shared the glory. And in the uh, subdued light, we mounted the platform and were all ready when the lights all went on at five minutes to 12. With me standing on the right hand of side of Nkoma, everybody was happy. The cheering probably is still resounding, but we don't hear it. the night was called Freedom High Life, written by E.T. Mensah, the king of African high life music. Ghana, land of freedom, toils of the brave and the sweat of the labor, toils of the brave which have brought results, toils of the brave and the sweat of the labor, twice of the babe which have brought results. It's very great that day. 
at the Independence Square. People are dancing, singing. They love the music and the song. The song really symbolizes the thing of Amukuma. At long last, the pastor is ended. Because we have freedom. We have our freedom. Already being hailed as the father of African nationalism, Nkrumah gave funds to other nationalist movements and preached the message across the continent. This mid-20th century is Africa's. This decade is the decade of African independence. Forward then to independence, to independence now. Tomorrow, the United States of Africa. Early words uh, from December uh, 1958 uh, by Dr. Kwame Nkrumah at the All-African People's Conference, the first All-African People's Conference held in Accra in uh, December of 1958. Uh, we also heard uh, excerpts uh, from the Independence Address uh, by uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah on March 7th of 1957, March 6th of 1957. And uh, right now we want to move into uh, a uh, segment uh, discussing Africa Day 2022. Now, Africa Day not only looks at the strides made by the continent in the fight against colonialism and apartheid, it's also a time for media professionals like us to look at the work we do in some countries that we see journalists being jailed or intimidated for doing their work, while in some countries the challenges appear to be um, even deeper. Let's look at the role of journalism in Africa now with freelance journalists covering African politics, Karim Duplessis, Sophie Mukwena, SABC News International Editor, Tembisa Fagude, Africa Asia Dialogues Director, Senior Research Fellow. Thank you so much to you all um, for your time this evening. I'll begin with you, oh, Sophie. Newsrooms are now operating under the COVID-19 financial restrictions. We've seen this, um, you know, happening over the last two years. And this has led to smaller newsrooms, some lower revenues in other areas as well as circulation and even the closure of some publications. Would you say journalism is under siege? Journalism is not under siege, but Journalism is experiencing challenges. Yes, indeed, due to COVID-19, many media houses had to scale down their operations. But uh, around the world generally, you have a similar problem. It is not a problem for Africa only, but worldwide. Mm. And we have seen people uh, taking decisions to do freelance work like uh, Karin there. And we are continuing to inform uh, the citizens of the continent and the citizens of the globe. But I think uh, we can do better as a continent, particularly big corporates, they can support media on the continent and we can continue to inform uh, the citizens of this continent because you know that uh, media can play an important role in strengthening democracy. It can also be a watchdog in terms of uh, issues that are problematic 
mm. in our and Tabisa, listening to also Femin, you also think about the real threat of the survival for the freedom of, of, of the press in our mm. continent. What are your reflections tonight? Well, my reflections are, you know, the dwindling of resources in terms of funding media institutions. We've seen, unfortunately, many media organizations shutting down because of lack of resources. But also there's a need for us to recalibrate the uh, curriculum at the media institution, the, the learning institution, that is, uh, because we still have archaic syllabus that is continually uh, pushed to uh, students, whereas you have the advent of new media, uh, particularly social media, which is currently dominating uh, how we mm -hmm. do our business. So we need to look at how we change uh, the way we teach journalism, but at the same time we also need to look at alternative ways of funding media institutions as they continue to close because of lack of funding. And Karin, Tavisa talks about social media changing how we do things as journalists. One of the things that has really been clear, even globally, is the impact of fake news on social media and what it has had on journalism. Talk to us about that. When you are looking at what is going on, would you say that in some instances, journalism appears to have taken backseat, overtaken by fake, fake news? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult to say. I mean, a lot of people use social media before they read any news outlets. And I was quite surprised. Somebody told me that her daughter uh, was looking, her young daughter was looking for something, and she was Googling YouTube. Like, like we would Google Google, she was Googling YouTube. So the child was only watching videos, and that was the way she was perceiving the world, and that was the way she was getting her information. Mm -hmm. And like Denise said, I sometimes feel, um, I mean, I've been working in journalism for two decades, and I feel like I know nothing, because things have changed so much, and the way people consume news have changed so much. And, you know, we think we're clever, we write these long um, uh, stories, these long, long analysis, and then I sometimes wonder... Yeah, you know, all people like ourselves read it, but do we reach the right audiences? Mm -hmm. And in that case, I think fake news is a lot more clever sometimes than us journalists. They know how to reach audiences. And I apologize for the background and the connection. I'm sitting here in Accra. I know, you are working. You are working there. We do appreciate <laughs> your time, Karin. Don't worry. But I'd yeah. like to let on to something you've said and throw the question back to you to say that has it changed, though, how you do your work now, especially when you look at the fact that um, you know, we, for example, as journalists and people who love the news would read the long analysis pieces, but some would want the short, sharp reads. Has that changed how you do your job? It hasn't changed how I personally do my job, although, I mean, I think perhaps it should have. And I remember there was a time when we were spending a lot of time sort of this, um, uh, disproving the fake news or, or reporting on fake news and reacting to it. Uh, but, I mean, we've seen developments such as, I think there's the Africa Check now. They, they set out, they, they, they check news and they send it out on, on WhatsApp. There's a specialized branch in journalism in a way to fact check. So, um, no, it hasn't changed the way. I mean, it, it's made us more careful, I think, definitely in terms of double checking information, especially if there's information on, on, on Twitter, mm. to double check that, that it's true because so much is fake. So, I guess in a way we're a lot more skeptical now um, of the information we get, and, and rightly so. But 
personally, um, and I mean, Twitter and, and, and social media, uh, it's, I mean, it, it's changed through the years. You know, we all took up on, on, on Twitter and social media. We were told to tweet and it's good for our careers, good for brand building. But now it proves to be, I mean, this is a whole long other debate, but it proves to have become a, a very toxic space. Mm. A lot of journalists get attacked on Twitter. And, um, and frankly, I'm not sure if it's worth tweeting all our thoughts on, on Twitter. So, so in that sense, over the past decade, it's changed, you know, from taking, I, I sort of changed from taking up Twitter and using it enthusiastically to basically not trying not to use it at all. So, so in that sense, yeah. Definitely. And I'd like to then move to you also on this one, because the integration of digital um, when it comes to a newsroom has been very important. But at the same time, as Karim says, the bullying that journalists are then subjected to is of grave concern as well, wouldn't you say? Yes, uh, I've been a victim on many occasions. You know, it does happen, but as a journalist, you know that what you have communicated is true. And that is why at all times you have to ensure that uh, you have the correct information and also you give a right to reply to the aggrieved parties. But at all times, you must ensure that your story is credible fair and balanced. And therefore, whoever accused you of uh, doing something, you know your story is credible and you have ensured that uh, whatever you are communicating, it's just facts and nothing else but facts. But it's quite uh, painful at times because uh, sometimes it can really, really get personal, sometimes misinformation, but for me, the critical issue is for people who are on social media to understand, particularly on Twitter, that you have limited words that you can write. And therefore, you are not able sometimes to give a background or perhaps to attribute, you, you will attribute it. But sometimes you do have a challenge because the characters are very few. Secondly, people don't understand when you write what somebody has said, they tend to say that's your view, mm. and that's not the case. You are there, you are covering the story, you are communicating what the newsmakers are saying. But, yeah, it can get hectic, very hectic. But you have to, to be strong and to be brave and soldier on. Mm. And, Tabisa, one of the things that we also saw with digital media has been the paywall. Um, some saying that they shouldn't be paying for content online, it should be free. Um, and others saying that, but you should pay for quality journalism. I wonder if it was, in fact, a good move to introduce paywalls, because others argue that journalists as well must eat. No, that's very true. Um, and you, you see a large exodus of good journalists going to private sector, some going to government, because of, again, the lack of, uh, of the ability for them to continue surviving given the competitive space that all of us operate within. Uh, so those are the challenges that we're all facing. But again, we need to find creative ways of surviving as older journalists because it's extremely competitive. And if you are going to insist on old ways of operating, unfortunately, we are going to exhaust ourselves and uh, most good journalists will end up uh, leaving the profession 
and going to private sector and some to government as it's been the case. But one point that I'd like to, to mention regarding the fake media, um, we also need to be careful of the weaponization of the fake media. I know in most instances, yes, we've had genuine fake uh, visuals, genuine fake uh, messaging, but the dictators, particularly the undemocratic governments in Africa, they have actually weaponized that. Uh, case in point, including some of the Western uh, powers, people like Trump and others, where good journalists continue telling good stories, but they will be uh, accused of uh, fake news. So as journalists, we also need to be very careful of this blanket condemnation. Of, uh, of fake news because there has been weaponization, particularly by these discourse uh, around the world of uh, fake news. And when we then look at, at, at what you've just said, but at the same time couple it with news fatigue, Karin, one of the things is that we are also seeing the consumption of news has also changed and some are saying that people don't know how to process what we are putting out. They have fatigue. They're looking at COVID-19. Their information are overloaded. How do we begin to address this challenge? Because it's also posing a threat to the work that we do. Uh, Karina, I think you are on mute. I'm sorry, I muted because there's a whole lot of noises uh, around Now me. we can hear you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think sometimes as journalists, uh, we, I mean, if, if, you, if you report on things that people are interested in, if you give them information they can use, information that's relevant to them, I don't think you can, um, you, you, you know, you, you can overload them with information. And, and I some, sometimes think as journalists, we... Uh, we need to be sure that we, we keep in touch with what it is that people want, what it is that is important to them. Um, I mean, I'm here at the African Development Bank meetings, and um, and always when I come to these things, it's, it's very clear there's an elite, and we say, I mean, I'm sitting here in the best hotel in, in town, uh, trying to get the best reception in town. Um, but we tend to lose touch. You know, the elites come, and they come in these hotels, they drive around in these cars, uh, and then you walk out in the street, and... The people here in Ghana and Accra complain about the inflation. I mean, I think they had inflation of something like 23 or 26 percent, um, that their food prices have gone up. The, the Uber drivers complain about their fuel prices, um, like all of us. And, and here the elites are sitting and they're talking about finance and they, they're all eating food and they, they don't worry about their, their fuel or their, or their hotel um, consumption, uh, you know, their hotel expenses. So I do think... Um, and as journalists, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of, of the message that we're communicating from these people, what these people, you know, the elite sit and, and they do and what, what people on the ground feel. And we, we must make sure to bridge that gap and not to, you know, not, not to sort of mm. become part of the elite and report things that people do not find relevant and, and report things that people say, well, you know, you report about the grants, you report about um, all the money that's coming for farming. Where is it? Where do I see it in my life? So... So I think, yeah, if you report relevant news, it, it, it can't ever, I don't, I don't think people will become tired or saturated. And certainly a very important point that you, you raised at the back of what Osofi spoke about when she says we need to speak to everyone and really be in touch and understand what the people are saying. But Osofi, when we look at, uh, you know, the targeting of journalists online, there's also the real threat, though, in some parts of the world where you find yourself as a journalist being arrested for doing your job. It is true, particularly on the continent, you know, to get accreditation, 
to work on the continent. It's so difficult. There are lots and lots of requirements. And you can see that the intention is to ensure that uh, you are not going to that country to write stories because the country perhaps doesn't want to open up for journalists to see what's happening in those respective countries. It is very, very difficult. You find a situation when, you know, you, you listen what Karin has spoken about in terms of the, where the elites are and the leaders are in terms of ordinary people. You know, for a journalist to travel on the continent, it's no child's play. It's so difficult to enter a country when you are a journalist. When you have entered, you will be followed, you will be monitored, you know. So it, 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 it is not easy. It is not easy. Sometimes some leaders see journalists as uh, enemies. They don't see us as people who are doing what we are supposed to do, creating space and platform for ordinary citizens on the continent to tell their stories. And I suppose then, Tembisa, that adds to the layer of weaponization that you spoke about because it's not only from the position of, uh, you know, declaring, if, and I'm using that in inverted commas by leaders, to say that this is, uh, you know, a fake news publication, but at the same time, the targeting of journalists when they enter into different countries to do their work is also another layer of weaponization. Well, that's very true. And I think what, what Sisofi is saying is, so important. The accreditation process is, is meant for a number of things. First is to um, deter good journalists from entering uh, countries, but importantly, it's also to intimidate journalists. And um, you have uh, politicians who are by and large very uh, careless and loose uh, in their tongues when it comes to the media. I mean, it has become commonplace for politicians around the world, including South Africa, to always blame the media. Uh, but it's also comforting to see that you have the president of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, acknowledging the media and sometimes recently thanking the media for their work. But it's not a uh, commonplace in many African countries. In many African countries, you have these standing blocks like the accreditation. And all of this is meant to not only intimidate the media, because once you're in there and they strip you of your uh, accreditation, it's uh, next plane home. So you have to try and behave because of that accreditation. Uh, but importantly is to prevent uh, the unlikables from uh, entering the country to cover uh, news. And Karim, uh, there's another issue which is around the mental wellness of, of journalists, especially now that journalists have been at the forefront of covering some horrific stories. And it's really something that is, is sometimes not really put as a priority in newsrooms, is it not? Uh, Karina, I think you're still on mute. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm concentrating so much on what I'm going to say. Um, yeah, I think all three of us sitting here are from a generation of journalists where mental health was never really an issue in the sense of it was never really addressed in the newsroom. You kind of just have to, you know, like get on with it and get your job done at, at all costs. And, um, and, and there was never really that dialogue. So I do think it's nice, it's really good now with a younger generation of journalists 
who are a lot more concerned about that. But, I mean, lately the COVID issues, the, um, the war in Ethiopia, for instance, and then on top of it, the war in the Ukraine um, that, that, that broke out an hour, uh, a year and a half later. Um, and I think the amount of conflict that we've seen after COVID, people have really lost it, um, not just journalists. I think in general the world is going through a really tough period, and, it, uh, and, and I think we're still going to see uh, more tough times um, with with the rise in, in, in the inflation, the rise in food prices, the rise in fuel prices. And, um, and yeah, I mean, journalists, you need to look after yourself because it's not only, I mean, you can't switch off. Some of my friends say, well, the news is too bad. I'm switching off for the day or for the week. Uh, you can't do that as a journalist. You have to, I mean, we have to process it all the time and we have to, um, to report on it. So, mm. so yeah, I mean, for me, it's actually, it's, it's nice to, to be able, I mean, I'm lucky to be able to travel out of South Africa and to kind of get a perspective from, from outside to go to countries where the problems are. I mean, I think there's a lot of problems everywhere, but it's nice to be somewhere where the problems uh, aren't mine. But I think, you know, journalists in general, um, need to be aware and we're also not the kind of people who stop easily we, we like to keep on working we're mm. obsessive about our mm. job and uh, and yeah and, and i think it is nice of the younger generation of journalists um i've learned certainly learned a lot from them um you know saying that if it's if, if you're not okay do something uh whether it be exercise whether it be going to, to see a doctor or, or a psychologist or just to talk to a colleague um yeah so, so, yeah, and it's something we should be, uh, you know, really aware of, especially now in these times. I'll turn this uh, question to you, Osofi, because you're an editor, you deal with journalists. Uh, they are not exempt from dealing with some of the challenges that we're facing in the country and globally. How then do you begin to address this issue of their mental wellness? You know, it is a difficult job, but uh, fortunately... Uh, I was able to adapt. For example, when COVID-19 started in China, it was December, we were on holiday. January, I had to come back early and cut my leave short to do the story. From that time, I've never had time to really uh, pause and reflect because it was covering this traumatic story but also team members, some of them getting uh, affected mm. and or their family getting affected, including myself, my family getting affected. Therefore, it was so, so difficult. It is still very difficult. Just COVID-19. This was a pandemic. No one was prepared for this kind of a story. This story that touches everyone. And then this year, the war in Ukraine. I mean, to go through, mm-hmm. sift through those visuals when mm-hmm. they arrive from your news agencies and journalists, the horrific videos, you, you get affected. I am still stuck with that story to date. Yesterday, I mean, in the United States of America, 21 people gone down. Mm. I'm a human being. I mean, you, you're thinking as a mother, as a grandmother, you know, you, 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 you put yourself in the in, in, you know, situation where these people are, the parents, you know, how, how difficult it is for them and the emotion. There's no way. There's no way. 
I'm traumatized. I don't want to tell lies. COVID-19, Ukraine, and many other stories that I've covered on the continent, sometimes they stay with me for mm -hmm. a long time. And these two in particular, I mean, the last time we knew or, or there was a pandemic, it was in 1918. And We've never experienced something like that. Definitely. The war, the, up, the conflicts mm. are there also. Yemen, Middle East, on the continent, there are pockets of conflict. You do these stories. You are a human being. Mm. It, 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 even in South Africa, when there are tensions, when there are, uh, you, know, you know, when it becomes violent, these march and all of that, you, you, you get affected. We are human beings. The issue of, uh, you know, the, the, the fight between the foreign nationals and South Africans, when it gets heated, you get affected. You even get caught in a crossfire because somebody didn't listen properly what you said. And you are now being uh, labeled as a, 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 a xenophobic person mm. or a person against South Africans. It's very traumatic. All right. Uh, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. But thank you so much for your insights uh, to all of you. Definitely um, a lot needs to be done in order to ensure that journalists are safe when doing their work. Journalists are given the right tools, but at the same time taken care of mentally. So let me thank you to you all for your time this evening. That was freelance journalist covering African politics. Uh, Karin Duplessis, Sophie Mukwena, SABC News International Editor, Tembisa Fagude, Africa Asia Dialogues Director, Senior Research and uh, that was uh, another uh, Africa Day uh, panel uh, discussing uh, journalism and media on the African continent. And uh, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment for uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, today is Saturday uh, May 28, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And this is uh, part of our Africa Liberation Weekend series. We'll be right back. If you had a choice of colors which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? How long have you hated your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Do you respect? Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin People Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And love for our nation would make a better society. Now some of us would rather cuss 
and make a fuss Than to bring about a little trust But we shall overcome, I believe, someday If you'll only listen to what I have to say And how long have you had your white teacher Who told you you love your black preacher Can you respect your brother's woman friend And share with black folks not of kin I say now people must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose? My brothers, if there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? If you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose? Welcome back. Uh, The music of the impressions, uh, choice of colors, and uh, we are here. Journal, radio broadcast, and this is our first uh, episode of the United Ethiopia. Some conference of the way you started on the 25th of 1963. And uh, this is uh, the Pan African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. If you'd like to have access to this program, all you have to do is go to our website at the Pan African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Right now we want to move into another segment dealing uh, with Africa Day uh, from an economic development and climate change perspective, uh, both from South Africa and Ghana. Well, Africa Day festivities are in full swing in the Ghanaian capital Accra. This as the continent marks the formation of the African Organization of African Unity, which was meant to free the continent from the shackles of colonialism and oppression. Kaili Lekumalo joins us now. Uh, Kaya, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Now, of course, what an important day, what a significant day, and no better place for you to be commemorating this day right in the heart of where it all started. Talk to us about what are the key focal points there? Well, that's right, uh, Unati. Here in Ghana, they do say Akwaba, which simply means welcome. So this is right at the very center where it all started. You go back to 1957 when Ghana really got its own independence uh, from Britain, and then just moved subsequently to be a leader in terms of inspiring other countries in the sub-Saharan Africa to also gain freedom. So now, 
At the very core of the issues uh, that the continent is battling with is around economic development. We have seen, obviously, a bit of a double whammy when you look at the challenges presented by COVID-19 and now, obviously, the issue around the ramifications of the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. That has been a talking point just in the discussions of the African Development Bank Group as also it's hosting its own annual meetings. But apart from that, uh, there's a very great deal of excitement here in the Ghanaian capital. A lot of people really are wearing their beautiful colors and really showing the diversity of the continent, but very mindful of the very challenges that are still quite visible in the continent in terms of dealing with poverty eradication, dealing with the gender empowerment of women in Africa, but also the issues around climate change as well, presenting quite a bad results in so many parts of the continent. But Unati, joining us now is South Africa's High Commissioner here in Ghana, of course, uh, that's Grace Mason. So, Madam High Commissioner, once again, thank you so much indeed. So, it is indeed a very auspicious day as we look at Africa Day. So, truly remarkable but also very mindful of the challenges that do still lie ahead in the continent. Um, thank you and good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, in Ghana, we say akwaba, it means welcome. To my fellow South Africans, Ndimasiari, Abusheni, Dumelang, Tobela, Molweni, and to my African brothers and sisters of African descent in the diaspora, happy Africa Day. Um, Koya, it is indeed an auspicious day as we commemorate Africa Day. Um, and I would like to commence by just uh, invoking the immortal words of the founding fathers of the OAU, um, former President Kwame Nkrumah, and I'd like to quote as he said, I am African not because I was born in Africa, but because Africa was born in me." Unquote. As we celebrate um, Africa Day, Kayam, we celebrate our collective freedoms, identity as well. And this is a day that we as Africans will then commemorate African Day. Um, African Day, um, as AU was launched in South Africa um, 20 years ago as we celebrate um, the African Union and the theme for this year um, for the African Union um, is strengthening resilience in nutrition and food security and that is the backdrop um, of the agenda for the AU for 2022. And also in pursuit of Agenda 2063, creating the Africa that we want. And you're correct, Kaya, with greater responsibilities comes with our freedoms. As we celebrate our collective freedoms, we must also know that it comes with greater responsibilities. We are currently grappling with the aftermath of the global pandemic, um, which has disrupted global value chains, and as well as the effects of climate change. Now, these are the responses, and with South Africa, 
Um, the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us to become self-reliant, to innovate, to then also produce our own industries and own um, vaccine productions. So those are the mitigations um, of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, we are grappling with uh, climate change, um, Kaya. And we look at the opportunities that present us. And as the African Union, um, to date, we can also celebrate some of the achievements that we have made so far. The establishment of institutions in the African Union. We now have the Pan-African Parliament that is also so graciously hosted um, in Johannesburg as well as the African peer review mechanism. Kaya, uh, we have our South African Secretary General at the helm of the African Continental Free Trade Area, which is also graciously hosted in Accra. And that is an opportunity and just a comparative advantage for the continent. When we look at our development uh, strategies, recovering our respective economies post-COVID-19, our respective developmental strategies, our national development plans, our ERRP strategies, at reviving our economies. And at the apex of that, uh, indeed, um, Kaya, is economic diplomacy. And in Ghana, uh, we've got a large footprint of South African corporates doing business um, in Ghana. Um, and as you moved around uh, for the past uh, week around Accra, you will see that in Accra Mall, we have your retail, um, ShopRite, we have Game, we have got Mr. Price. Um, we also have our major banks um, in Ghana, Stanbic, FNB, APSA, we've got telecommunications sector, um, MTN in our mining industries, we also have in the western region of Ghana, we have our gold fields um, in all other SMMEs um, and corporates in, 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 Ghana, in South African corporates doing business in Ghana, over 200 um, South African corporates, um, a large footprint in terms of our um, economic diplomacy trajectory, promoting South Africa, promoting inward and outward um, trade between our two countries as part of our bilateral relations um, and also promoting and we just had uh, President Ramaphosa launching um, the Presidential Investment uh, Summit on the 24th of March in South Africa so that is what we are promoting um, and part of our recovery strategy and developmental uh, trajectory for South Africa and for the continent, um, Kaya. Uh, and just once again, Madam High Commissioner, uh, we look at the ramifications emanating from the Ukraine-Russia conflict. We know that in the continent you do have quite a number of countries relying from the wheat, the soya beans, the maize coming from these warring countries. Just with Ghana, quite a very lot of arable land. How can agriculture be used to mitigate the very serious looming food crisis that a lot of people are talking about in this, in this continent? Um, thank you, Kaya. And the opportunities that we have as South Africa 
um, President Ramaphosa um, undertook a state visit to Ghana at the end of at the end of December last year. And as part of his state visit and inaugural session of the Binational Commission, a number of agreements were signed. And especially um, looking at the theme of the African Union, we signed a memorandum of understanding in the areas of agriculture to cooperate with the government of Ghana. And you are correct. There are so much opportunities in terms of food security uh, and agriculture, the opportunities that exist between our two nations. You look at the regions and the geographics of Ghana, um, you've got regions in the northern regions where primarily the economic activity centers around agriculture, the Volta region, the western region, um, the eastern region, and the Ashanti region. So those are the opportunities um, that we will pursue in terms of collaborating in food security and agriculture. Um, and as I met the Minister of Agriculture, um, as you've indicated on the margins of the African Development Bank's meetings, uh, we discussed the opportunities and South Africa will then um, also envisage to undertake a visit uh, led by Minister Didiza, delegation of South Africans, to come and look at further um, pursuing opportunities in the regions of agriculture, um, food security, animal husbandry, and also looking at skills transfer and further opportunities of cooperation. But the opportunity that we also have, Kaya, as Africans, is that we should also um, use the trajectory of the African continental free trade area to look within ourselves African uh, trade, regional integration, continental um, integration that we begin to trade amongst ourselves in the areas of food security, um, products that are Ghanaians, and I'll speak about Ghana, South Africa, and South African products that we then bring into the market um, to ensure that we do then pursue um, our agenda of ensuring that we create resilient um, value chains um, for the prosperity of the continent, and that is the opportunities that we will have and um, in Ghana as well, and as part of the instruments of the African Continental Free Trade Area, um, an instrument was also launched, the Pan-African um, Payment Settlement System. And what that basically means, Kaya, it means that you can simply trade when I am um, traveling and I'm Ghanaian and I travel to South Africa, I can trade and buy goods and services um, using the RAND. As South Africans come to Ghana, we can then trade using our local currencies. And for me, those are part of the uh, comparative advantages that we have and that we should leverage on um, to ensure um, prosperity of our continent, Kaya. All right, uh, Madam High Commissioner. So you can uh, see Unati, the High Commissioner, really passionate about intra-Africa trade, boosting Ghana-South Africa relations. Of course, it's happening as the continent is marking Africa Day. So it's all about economic development, making sure that Africa is able to overcome some of the very chronic challenges that are still facing the continent. 
Kaya, thank you so much uh, for that. Of course, you didn't tell me what uh, thank you means, uh, uh, you know, in that part of the world. But from my side, Ngozi Kakulu to you and the High Commissioner. Of course, she is the High Commissioner for uh, South Africa in Ghana. Relations uh, between the two countries, as well as the history of Ghana and the overall independence struggle, uh, which uh, reached uh, fruition in 1957. That's going to conclude our program uh, for uh, today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, of course, uh, we're here every week. This is the first episode of our African Liberation Weekend program. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at So you can see some of the more pressing and pressing issues of the day website at panafternews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of the John Coltrane Quartet uh, from the album entitled Africa Brass. This is Abayomi Azikaway signing off and have a beautiful week.